You're listening to New Wave, Materials, Methods and Media, Glasgow School of Art, 1970-1986, a series of podcasts produced as part of a research project for Glasgow School of Art's archives and collections. I'm Debbie Banerjee. Episode 4, Talk, Make, Play. This is the second part of the podcast focusing on the mixed media department, which ran from 1977 to 1981. This part discusses the work made by the students of the department, the opportunities for students leaving art school in the late 1970s and early 80s, and what eventually happened to the department. The podcast features, in order of appearance, Barry Kaur, who studied at GSA from 1977, specialising first in product design, and then she moved to mixed media and then spent her final year in sculpture after the department closed. Brian Kelly, who studied from 1976, he specialised first in printmaking and then moved to mixed media. He started to teach at the school from 1985 and currently teaches fourth-year sculpture and environmental art. Roger Hoare worked at GSA for eight years from 1973. He started as an assistant in the painting department and set up mixed media in 1977. Ronnie Forbes worked for four years at Glasgow School of Art from 1978. He taught in the printmaking, drawing and painting and mixed media department during this time. Carol Campbell was married to Stephen Campbell, who was in the mixed media department from 1979-80 to 1981. And finally, Jane Taylor, who studied at GSA from 1978 and specialised in printmaking. My name's Vary Kaur. As far as I recall, there was no structure And that might have been good for people who already had their their discipline and knew what they were going to be doing. Like, through the the wall from me was Stephen Campbell, and he would be in very early every morning, and he'd put on his Mahler music, and he would just paint away (laughs) from morning till night, stopping only to eat little blocks of cheddar cheese. So he was totally disciplined, he knew what he was doing, he already had his voice. I was like just a buffeted speck, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I'd come from product design, where I'd been fairly good at what I was doing. And now I was totally left on my own, and I wasn't mature enough at that stage to create my own structure. So I was like something blown off a dandelion clock. I was floating about, totally lost. I would go into the corner of my little room, and I would just... I thought, I can't go wrong just by drawing, so I'll go back to the basics... And I totally even lost any inspiration or clue as to what to do. So occasionally that happens now. So you start drawing circles with a pencil and a piece of paper. And it just frees up your hand, frees up your wrist, frees up your arm, frees up your shoulder. Next thing you know, you're doing bigger and bigger circles. And it kind of gets the air going through your body. <laughs> it's the air going to your brain. So I do remember filling lots and lots of uh, these wee blank bushy books with circles. And then putting paper on the wall and start just doing circles on the wall. It stopped me just totally shutting down, you know. And my circles were, they were shit hot, actually. My name is Brian Kelly. Tutorials were a structured thing. We didn't have crews, but we had lots of group activities, field trips. Probably the most memorable one was where we did presentations to each other, either on our work or on a subject in relation to our work that interested us. And that, that was a way ahead of its time, sort of peer learning in a way. And I suppose, you know, that fitted the model of the group critique. But in a way, even better than the 
conventional model of group critique we have now where the centre of that critique is the student's work. That was an optional thing when Roger did it for us. It could be something that represented the belief that you had in your work or just something that was a kind of satellite interest in relation to your work and wanted to be informed more about. So you could bring that into that arena and discuss it and have it challenged. I suppose maybe even something that might be quite remote from your work, that you didn't have to declare it in relation to it. So that would take the personal sting out of it. You could be, be talking at something at a distance. And I think, you know, in relation to learning through the critique system, distance is a thing that helps you learn. What disables learning is proximity. If you're really close to what you're doing and, and it hurts you to have to hear things said about it, then that can impede progress sometimes in learning. With two that I remember distinctly, and they're good examples because they polarise, and one was from Sandy Stoddart. And Sandy was in the sculpture department. He fitted the traditional model of the sculpture student. So he would invite Sandy along to be part of our discussion group and was at the top of the assembly building in the front room overlooking the map. And Sandy did a magnificent presentation. I don't know if it was the week after or what kind of time frame it was, but the next presentation was Alastair McCallum, who was in the printmaking department. But Alastair was an ardent socialist. All his interests were in Russian socialist realism, and, and I suppose that underpinned all of the imagery and ideas in the work. And so then he came to talk about that, and that was that was really antagonistic. The third person would be somebody who represented... I suppose on like a convention at that time, but minimalism and, and modernism. So on a weekly or was it a fortnightly basis, these arguments would happen and they were quite fiery and they were very enjoyable and they were really useful. I mean, there only was the one tutor who was Roger and he was very encouraging and he'd spend a lot of time, he had a genuine interest in the students and he would spend a lot of time talking to people. I mean, my experience, no way, to, I don't mean to, you know, no disrespect to Roger or the, the studio or the department, because it was all good, it was just it was me that was kind of lost. And Roger did try with me, he uh, spoke to me, he spent a lot of time trying to work out what I was interested in. I mean, I didn't know, so Roger wasn't going to know either. Ronnie Forbes came, I think it was in my last year, because I went down with appendicitis suddenly, and he was on the staff and they brought him to look, in to look after the students while I was away. I was away for about three weeks and came back quite quickly, still with stitches in my side in the snow. And Ronnie and I hit it off. So I said, why don't you just stay? They won't notice. And so we did. And they didn't really bother. That was Bill Buchanan. Bill was very supportive of what I was doing because he could see that we were serious and we worked really hard. My name is Ronnie Forbes. It was 1978 to 1982 and my employment was complex in that there was eventually a large number of short contracts for different functions and so on to the level that it reached 150% whole time at one point. Either during my first year at Glasgow School of Art or perhaps early the following session, Roger Hoare asked him for some extra budget to get the part-time help in, mm-hmm. and he invited me to fill that role. So I started to work in mixed media, and it was very much a kind of family group feel. It wasn't too large, and since it was very unrestricted and so on, 
I spent quite a few after hours uh, continuing the teaching role in the pub with the students as well. I do admit in those days. It was very relaxed and I remember, I think it was David Sukup who was there at the time, used to play lovely kind of classical music fairly quietly but you would just hear it and then then sometimes Stephen would put on his maller very loudly and then Stephen and Adrian might be having a kind of banter about painting and stuff that could get quite heated so you would hear all this stuff going on but it was a very kind of a productive feeling you felt like there was a lot of energy and there was a lot of views getting exchanged and I didn't partake of it I just stayed behind the board and listened a competitive atmosphere, I think, really, you know, and that's what made it really buzzing, I suppose, that everybody was trying to sort of nail their colours to the mast, that this is what I'm doing and look look at me sort of style, because, I mean, both Stephen and Adrian Vishnevsky were in that department. So, yeah, I think there was a lot of vying for top dog kind of thing. Jane Taylor, it was as much about showing your personality off and what you wore and how you presented yourself and it was all about that really and there was a lot of that going on with the guys. Ken Curry always wore his full boiler suit and had his hair very short and had his workman's boots on and Adrian had to have his very sharp suit. Big Dave Sukup wore his suit. Stephen, he went vintage shopping. I remember he found a shark skin suit and it was just the finish on the material was slightly shiny and it was cut very sharp, Italian style and the white shirt and a tie, you know, and he'd be painting in the studio. It was about the style and it was the confidence we were projecting, this confident image. It was an adventurous, loose range of activities. It was student-centred more so than, say, drawing and painting was at that time. So it was a question of saying to each student, right, what what do you want to do? And then you help them do it. So it was an enabling thing but challenging, critically underpinning as well. But it was more what art education in general across disciplines became in later times. The type of activity was quite wide. I mean, Stephen Campbell, for instance, did some uh, performance work at, at that time. So, And they were wonderful things, as much for the sets he built for those as the actual performance, I have to say, because mm-hmm. all the kind of imagination that eventually went into his painting showed up in these sets and so on. I, I, you know, a very particular vision and life view and a quirkiness and so on. I should say something about Stephen Campbell because he was in my last group of students. I'd seen what had happened to him. I'd seen his work in Foundation, in a show in the museum. He had done drawings from Beckett, and I heard he was going to drawing and painting. In the, the year after, he went into the first year in drawing and painting, and I heard various mutterings and rumblings on behalf of the staff about this character. is interesting, but he's so difficult because he was obviously trying to make large work in a, in a crowded room with 17, 18 other students and it would be impossible for him. I can remember doing a life class in a room on the left-hand side of the Macintosh building. There was a room where there had once been a place where they collected all the materials for the life room. Anyway, there was a drawing student studio up there which was occasionally using life modelling and I, ha- I was going to do it for sculpture and printmaking and drawing, drawing and painting students, my students. And when I got there, there was this character working there in a vast pile of rubble and scribbling and paint everywhere. 
and I said I'm sorry but I've booked this room to do a drawing class and he kind of harumphed go away I'll come back I said I'll be free tomorrow you're welcome to join in if you like thinking I hope not anyway that was Stephen Campbell I met him again later with his wife we seemed normal and reasonable and happy like Carol and I thought he can't be completely mad if he has a wife like that so one day we passed by each other on the way between the annex and the Macintosh and said what are you doing next year I said where are you working back in drawing and painting and I said why don't you come and work in my area what's that mixed media never heard of it anyway he came uh, in my final year he had worked in, a, in Motherwell in the steel mills as a fitter his approach to art was through literature through reading James Joyce his great hero and then and later Beckett so that was his approach and when I talked about literature and about other ways into art so we became friends he was very knowledgeable knowledgeable about postmodernism knowledgeable about art artists he read widely Picasso was his great hero and so that was the beginning of a whole friendship between me and him but he had to be dealt with in a kind of canny way I didn't set him anything I kind of left ideas hanging he would say to me have you read this or that and I would say no I think my wife's read that it was always a kind of backhanded way of teaching so opera the trip first or second year I would think maybe about 1979 he was quite inspired at that point by the Irish writer James Joyce had died in Zurich in Switzerland and had asked to be buried within earshot of the lions and this was I think which kind of triggered the zoo opera thing and zoo opera the trip it was a poised a la Bruce McLean a sort of poised performance where Stephen would go through various, you know, motions like this and then there was a sort of metal arched bar that was across the floor and that would trip you up as you were trying to progress, so that was the kind of premise behind it but sort of leading in then to poised murder so it was very much maybe music stop, action move again with it just the music running in the background I can't remember what music it was for that David Sukup played the detective in Stephen's Poised Murder performance, which is a kind of highlight of that last year, in which I was one of the people who was being murdered by Jane Taylor. David Sukup was on all fours with a magnifying glass, crawling around on this strange set. And Stephen had done illustrations from Voilette Nozier on the wall. Who was the French murderess. She murdered her father and attempted to murder her mother but she became the sort of darling of the intelligentsia because they saw it as a very bourgeoisie crime and that she had actually made a stand against that kind of bourgeois existence. So Andre Breton, the surrealist, really championed her case and eventually, although they thought that she would get the death penalty, it was actually sort of commuted and she ended up coming out from jail and having a family of her own. She was used as the background set and he painted a black and white checkerboard floor and round the checkerboard floor there was a running track. And Stephen was there with Carol. He was murdering Carol. And Adrian Wisniewski had been a bit flighty, as he always was, and so he was written out of the script. And uh, Stephen's friend Tommy 
uh, and his girlfriend were in it instead. So the three couples, the lights would go down and then the lights would flash on and we'd have taken up a new sort of murder position, maybe somebody with a, a dagger at their throat or somebody else with you know their hands round their neck. And I always remember Adrian and Stephen killed Jan and I, we were the victims, but Jane got to murder Roger. She... <laughs> There had to be one man that had to be a victim, so poor Roger got the short straw and he had to be the victim that got murdered. Originally I was going to be written out of the script because I was too wooden. Very difficult to be a tutor, to, to wear a black polo with a, a necklace and uh, have your hair slicked down with bro cream and wear all black. It just wasn't me. Costumes, they were quite simple, all hand-sewn by myself, sort of silver lamy pieces of material. So all the girls just wore a black leotard and then it was just a simple straight little sort of knee-length skirt with a bit of elastic through the waistband. I mean, my, my sewing skills were not great, and as I say, they were all hand-done, but they looked quite good under the stage lights. Anyway, it was a public performance in which we had to play dice. Originally it was going to be to the music of Einstein on the Beach with Philip Glass and the Robert Wilson thing, which was one Stephen really liked that at the time. But he decided that the music wasn't right, so it was Robert Ashley was the music, which was very, very cool art music from New York. Originally the, the men, had, we had to be geezers and play cards or dice or something. It was put on in mixed media, first of all, to a, an audience invited from the school, and then down in the little dance hall, opposite the library, it was a dance for the dental college, so it was full of dentists. We put it on there, and I was in it again. Only Adrian was in it this time. He was just perfect for it. Adrian was Mr Cool, a real cool dude. So he wasn't the first student to do performance. I had male and female students. A couple of years before that, down in the annex, I had two female students who were quite feisty. Jerry Hanley was one of them, and Catriona, she was student president. They were both feisty girls. They put on a feminist performance. So that was quite early in the uh, the 70s, um, which they also put on in a bar outside the school where they dressed up as mannequins. They were frightening. Um, Other students did three-dimensional work. Um, Students did big protest banners, embroidered. I remember a student did a big embroidery of the front of a, t- a tattoo shop. Uh, so uh, the work was completely different. Big, dark, charcoal drawings of television sets. The means were totally varied and included quite conventional works alongside less conventional works at that time. Well, I didn't actually do this work in the studio because I, I kept getting kind of mildly frightened and running home, which was just round the corner. So I would find myself going into the mixed media department when it was really quiet. Like It seemed to be open at the weekend, as far as I remembered, so I could go there when it was quiet. And then I would do my work at home in my flat, just round the corner. I was experimenting with paper pulp at the time and I made a big rhinoceros. I remember Roger asking to see it, because I think he had to do a tutorial there was no work really apart from my circles in my studio so you couldn't really give me a mark on my circles. I was going to bring the rhinoceros out of my house to the studio but I'd made that um, inevitable mistake of the rhinoceros being too big to get out of the door. That really did happen and it was then that I'd had to go to Roger and say he's going to have to come up to the house and so it was arranged that him and another tutor would come up but for some reason they never appeared so they never did see the rhinoceros which ended up getting sawed in bits to, to get taken out of the house. 
got its head out and it, then its stomach had jammed so its arse was still in the house and its big head was out in the hallway in the foyer on the landing. You know, that diversity of approach to art, to nourish learning, was something that I felt the course or Roger embraced in a social way as well. We had a really diverse group of interests in the in the studio in terms of art and making. I remember Vary making a paper mache crocodile at the other corner of the studio. Rab was doing hyper-realist painting with an airbrush. I was doing Don Judd-like minimalist sculpture. My memory of it, the layout of the studio and the geography of the architecture of the studio where we had this platform at the front where we had our group discussions and seminars and, and then we had lower space which was the studio, the main body of the studio in the middle of that we had our table tennis table and then at the very back we had a wood shop with workbenches and cupboards full of tools. I think that that was a very carefully constructed structure of pedagogy where no part of it was seen as more or less important to any other part so that the often hefty debate that was had on that platform but that was almost as important as in the evening we would have a game of table tennis and it was really important that Roger didn't win but he always would some people would be involved in it and some people wouldn't because other people would be making stuff and at the back of it we had this workshop that was just for us and we could work in there to make things and so there's sort of extremes down the kind of central axis of the studio at one end the platform for debate and at the other end the place to make with materials and both of these things were dealt with in an equal way I was a keen table tennis player I played at school and I played seriously so the students all set about trying to beat me the town planning students who came from different countries used to come in and they were good players but they used to bring their friends who were even better players to come in and play me. <laughs> so it, it was a kind of feature of my life. I think Stephen was going to do a performance with a table tennis element. And that's how the table tennis table came. People just come in and out all the time. At a point where you weren't absolutely sure if they were mixed media or not. I know, but also it wasn't exclusive to fine art because we had quite a few people would pop in from textiles. And I think it was influential in a way where Roger encouraged it, supported it. I think he probably thought it was attractive socially and that was a useful thing in learning. But I think also it sort of helped him put value on differences of approach. If we have textiles in with extreme left-wing printmakers and, and classical sculptors, and etc., that's a good thing, I think. There was a real blurring boundary you know, between learning territories, the social ones and, and the, the formal academic ones that's something I think has changed in the school now. I, th- I suppose also Roger encouraged the table tennis because he loved the game and he was much better than the rest of us. And the only person that came in to play table tennis who was better than Roger and all of us was John Kraska who was a brilliant table tennis player and very competitive. And there's another wee thing, so then through that social grouping, John's considerably older than me and the rest of my peer group, of course, but that, that's how I met John. And then become involved in a in community and public arts afterwards, John was, and then I made that contact through Roger and Mixed Media. I didn't see it as a contact at the time. I just saw it as a natural thing. You just move among people and we all 
did things together. Students were supposed to come with me and maybe spend a term. A lot of them spent a year. Some of them never left. But it worked out. On the other hand, it was a good way for all the difficult ones to be sorted out somewhere else. I had many of the awkward squad. I could relate to them all individually, and later with Ronnie Forbes as well. I did do another thing with Jackie Parry. Uh, Jackie and I wanted to do something about careers advice. There was nothing in the school for careers. So we did a two-day thing, really exploring what students could do after they left. So we did our own posters, got the uh, textiles to print them. Uh, I did a poster of a mother want you to become a teacher. The picture next to it was self-portrait as a conceptual artist, wearing a beret and uh, with a torch. We got a whole group of people in from the Department of Education to tell the students about what it is to become a teacher. We got people from Jordan Hill in. We got art gallery people from Edinburgh in. Graslow Print Studio people in. Arts Council people in. And got them to talk in public. Tony Jones had arrived by then, so we had to put it to him. It's one of the first things we did. These brought life to the place. You know, these were public expression of activity. Students who came to mixed media were not going to be teachers. They wanted to be artists, but there were no jobs. There were no exhibitions for them. There were very few places to exhibit, 1970s, early 1970s. The Third Eye was just opening, for example. There were various exhibitions in Glasgow occasionally for annual ones for ex-art school students, but very, very, very difficult. So what, what was going to happen to my students? That's why I got myself on the board of WASPs, Workshop and Artists Studio Provision Scotland, because I felt I had to do something for my students when they left. So I got involved in that. The one thing I did in WASPs, there was no Glasgow studio at that time, and I started to look for premises. One day I was walking down Argyle Street, and I saw this Tillet sign on a, a premise in King Street. And I mentioned it back at the committee that that would be an interesting building. And the guy who was employed full-time to, to run uh, WASPs went and looked at it, and that was the building that became the WASP studio in Glasgow. So I had my little part to play, because I had an open eye. And the next thing I did was I had a lorry, and at night took a lot of the tables and chairs which had been left by architecture, because they had all new stuff for the Bordon building, and we just piled into the lorry and took it down for the Wasp Studios and six or seven easels there, illegally, of course. So I began to do things external for students. I also was on the board of the Third Eye and I campaigned a bit for uh, a student show for under-30s because that would stop older people. Not me, actually, at the time, uh, though I didn't put work in. Uh, so I wanted to get that registered in the Third Eye. as a, We should have links with the Third Eye, but links with our students. I encourage students to go down there to see the shows, because they were really interesting shows. Roger formed a group called Public Image, was a public art business that I eventually became involved in, another with Alan Porter and Stan Bell, called Art and Context just as I graduated from the school, which was a great thing in progression from the school into the world. I was approached by three of my students to 
see if I could get some work for them when they left. They were in the earliest group of my students. And I said, I'm, I'll see what I can do. Could we get any mural painting? Because John Byrne had done his mural. Tim Armstrong, who was also at the school when I was there, had done his. And I knew there were more murals going to be done. In fact, later I was approached by the Scottish Development Agency to do murals. So, and so was Alan Potter and Stan Bell. So there was two groups formed. Me with my ex-students and those two. Originally, I put it to the Scottish Development Agency that I wanted to design with very simple architectural patterns or stripes or, that related to the form of the building of the Gable End, but done in applied materials, like the kind of grits that were an off byproduct of the diamond industry. But they wanted painted murals. So the students who came to me I went around one summer, around Glasgow on a bicycle, finding sites. Different from Alan Potter and Stan Bell's sites. So I had a group of students. In the end, I think we had about six to do. It was very, very difficult to do. The students had to liaise with the different housing associations. And in one area, particularly near the art school down in Woodlands, they didn't want any murals because you only have murals in derelict areas. And I said, no, no, no. They're going to do up these landfill sites if we can do some murals. So I had to negotiate very politely. I found a site next to the ballet school, next to a primary school, where there are three murals, uh, opposite another primary school nearby for another one, then one on the south side, and two up in Cathcart. And so I went and negotiated with each of these places and the students as well. I found the students not willing to negotiate, which I thought was really, really odd, because you have to link with the local... So it was very important for me to do that. I found the students then also difficult designing for these sites. We had to do preliminary designs so that locals could see them and be involved in their voice. I ended up working on designs as well. So we started. One of the... In the housing area in Woodlands, I decided a chess game would be good for the school. So I found a a book on classic chess games. So the whole mural was made up of the moves of a chess game. But we we couldn't have got away with black and white boards. It it had to be kind of subdued. So I set the whole thing up, the paints, the scaffolding. It was complicated. I was responsible for the ex-students, four of them in the end. They had to do the drawing up. I was teaching at school. So I joined them at the weekend. When I came back, they'd started painting in bright reds. I said, look, you can't do this. We agreed that we weren't going to do this. And they said, well, we don't agree. So we had a bit of a public fight. And so I went back to the architect who was in charge of it and said, I'm having this problem with these students. Shall we float them off as a separate group? And I deal with another. And he said, no, you're in charge. So I had to get it changed. My aim was to employ some ex-students, but then in the summer current students of mixed media so that's what I did so I I floated them off gave them the job to draw up things and these were big 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 things you know 30 40 feet high Roger announced that he was going to leave and head southwards it was decided that the course would disappear with him because it was very much his instigation and so on. I had already, at Roger's request, since I was, as well as being a painter, I was a a filmmaker, that if I could start 
some film activity within mixed media, that would be a good thing. So we started in a very, very small way. And when it became apparent that mixed media as a grouping was going to disappear, Bill Buchanan, the head of fine art, asked me to develop and continue the filmmaking course as an entity in its own right. And I would be redeployed as a member of painting staff and run the film course. To me it seemed to come out of the blue that um, all of a sudden we were given appointments to go and see Bill Buchanan. And it was only then that uh, I got the news that Roger was leaving and that the mixed media department would now be breaking up. And it just seemed very much out of the blue. And Bill Buchanan was saying that we ought to think of what departments we'd want to go into. And I had no idea, really. Again, I had no idea. And I remember being in his office, and there was just me and Stephen left, I think everybody else had been allocated, and Stephen didn't want to go back to painting. I think Stephen was insisting he just gets a room to himself. It was something like that. And I was allocated the sculpture department. But it ended up just being in a, a wee sort of basement room that I found in what had been the printmaking department. So I was officially part of the sculpture. I just worked in this little room, tearing up newspaper, with absolutely no tutor input whatsoever. I was asked at the end, very nicely by Bill Buchanan, what should we do about mixed media now that you're leaving? So I was asked to meet him and Michael Mulder, which I thought was very polite of them. What, what should we do with it? And I said, I think you should close it because that's not the way students should be taught. What was happening in its media should be part of a fine art. And there's nothing we were doing. It wasn't that avant-garde. The fact that students were doing relief work or performance work or video. There was no video at that time. I also championed photography in fine art. That's why I made dark rooms. I made three of them. I did not want to be a single person teaching these students. They should have a variety of voices, not just my opinion. I also do not like the idea of the charismatic teacher with disciples. It got to a point where some of them were starting to copy my work. I thought, no, no, no I, can't, I can't be doing this. I, I didn't like that approach. I wanted different people who would have different ideas from me. I wanted drawing and painting Western Scotland landscape painting to carry on. I didn't want to get rid of it. Uh, I don't like orthodoxy. I went back to Glasgow 15, 20 years later and saw screens everywhere screen after screen after screen and thought this is a nightmare this isn't what I wanted very little painting being done but at that time I felt that mixed media should just, part of, just be normal You've been listening to a podcast written and produced by Debbie Banerjee for Glasgow School of Arts Archives and Collections for more information about the project, please visit gsaarchiveprojects.wordpress.com. The next episode will look at the extracurricular activities at the school in the 1970s and 80s.